professor of law and director of the Civil Rights Clinic and the Voting Rights Institute at Georgetown University Law School. He served on the transition team of President Barack Obama. He's testified before Congress on civil rights issues and drafted numerous briefs to the United States Supreme Court. More recently, he's joined me in my fight to hold social media accountable. Here's part one of an amazing story. A kid from Haiti with no advantages became a true American success story. Meet my friend, Addison Francois. Addison Francois, bonjour. Welcome to the Cultural Scavenger. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Andy. Addison, you've got just such incredible credentials and you've got one of the truly American success stories. So, and I say bonjour because obviously mm-hmm. that's your native language. How does yeah. a kid from Haiti go from there to here? So tell me about your journey. It's it's pure luck. And obviously it's thank, thanks to my parents. Um, I was born and I grew up in Haiti. Um, my parents were two young kids uh, in Haiti who were trying to make it. Uh, my father grew up himself in a poor, very large family of eight kids. Wow. And when he married my mother, they very quickly had two kids of their own, um, my older sister and myself. And very soon my father realized that it was going to be almost impossible for him to support his young family. So he did something that I've always wondered really wondered if I would ever have the courage to do. He picked up and he left his home country and headed to a place they'd never been before and he never spoke the language. He didn't have a job and he didn't have any money. So when my sister was five years old and and I was four, my father left and immigrated to this country. And then a year later, when I was five and my sister was six, my mother joined him. And we lived with relatives and in a boarding house. And the two of them work. What I should say is that before my mother left, she had another kid. Then she was pregnant before my father left. So it was the three of us, me, my sister, and my younger brother. So imagine, Andy, how hard and impossible it must have been for my mother to live behind basically her newborn son, my my younger brother. And they worked for many years in this country, uh, sending money back home. It's like a typical, typical sort of Haitian journey, if you will. It's really, my story is going to sound very, very familiar to anybody who's been a recent immigrant to this country. And then when we were old enough, maybe close to college age, um, they brought us to this country and we stayed permanently. I basically told them the thing that every Haitian parents dream, dream about. I told them that my goal was that I was going to be a physician. Um, And that was basically close to God. (laughs) But um, unbeknownst to them, but very quickly obvious to me, I basically have no head for science whatsoever. (laughs) <laughs> that, 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 so, sounds, that sounds almost like my journey. I was going to be a physician too. And yeah. then I, I, it was like, and then organic chemistry pretty much did the, did the trick for me. 
Well, physics did it for me because in pre-med, back then when you were in college, you had to do physics, you had to do chemistry, and you had to take organic chemistry. I barely made it through organic chemistry, but physics, in fact, basically did it for me. So essentially... But I want to back up. I want to back up for a second because your parents are over here in this country and you're still Mm -hmm. in Haiti with your sister and your younger brother. Exactly. Who who was, who was minding the store? Who, who were you staying with? At first, at first we lived with our grandmother, but then we moved to stay with a sort of, she wasn't a relative. She was more of a family friend who ran a boarding house, but it was a very small boarding house. So eventually that's where we grew up. And what would happen if every summer we would basically travel to the U.S. and spend summer vacation with my parents. And by then they had another kid, which was my younger sister. And then before school started back, we would go back to Haiti. And then we stopped by the time we had to go to college. But you were how old by the time, by the time you were able to come to the States permanently, how old were you? Um, 16, turning 17. So it was 11 years before, from the time your father and your mother left to the time you were able to come to the States, correct? Permanently, yes. In between, starting when I was around eight years old, uh, we used to come for summer vacation. I always, sometimes when I think about it, there are two things that become, that really stick in my mind. The first is what I mentioned before, the fact that right now, Andy, if you were to tell me that I had to pick up and moved to a place I'd never been before where I didn't speak the language, I didn't know the culture, and start all over again and give up everything that I knew. I just don't know whether I would have the capacity to do it. So that's the first thing that I always think about. But the second thing I think about also is that I know why they did it. I know why they basically left their kids behind them. And Haitians tend to be intensely, and you know this, I mean, Andy, as a parent yourself, that they're intensely attached to their kids. And the idea of leaving your kids behind, to me, I'm thinking if I had to leave my behind, I don't know what I would do. But I know why they did it. They did it because that was the only way they thought they could give us a chance. And that's they were, they were right. Yeah. And I've always been grateful for them for that. I've always been, you know, I missed them terribly. You know, it actually affected our relationship. I, I didn't grow up with my mother. I didn't grow up with my father. I'm very close to them right now. But still, there's this sort of gap in our time together but i understand why they did it it was tough but it was and and it was a huge sacrifice but i think ultimately obviously they did the right thing i mean i think so i mean certainly i would never you know there are basically five of us in the family i have an older brother it's i have an older sister i have a younger brother and i have a younger sister so i'm basically white in the middle and i think If you were to ask me how to explain my journey, the way I would say it is that the single most important that has shaped where I am and who I am is that I was lucky enough to have had the right parents, not because they were wealthy, not because they had connections, not because they were, you know, they had a lot of power, but they made what you, to use your word, sacrifices. And as a result, we all in the family as kids benefited from that. And I think more than anything else, if you had to, if you were to tell me what explains why I'm right now, I would say my father, thanks to Bell God, which has his name, and thanks to Mercer Lund, that's her name. Hmm. That's why I'm right now. Yeah, because they cared for you. 
and they yeah. looked out for you, even if they were separated from you, they were looking out for you. Exactly. Because remember, I grew up at a time when you didn't have the sort of ability to communicate that uh, that easily with people. In fact, back home in, in Haiti, we, we didn't live in a house where you had a regular phone, right? Mm-hmm. There's only two ways you could communicate. One way you could communicate was that they had these stores and all these stores did was that they had telephones in the stores and you made an appointment to call overseas. But that was insanely expensive, insanely yeah. expensive. So there's only one way that I was able to communicate with my parents. Every month, they would basically mail to the house a cassette tape, literally a cassette tape. Those things were basically... Yeah, really yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And what they would do every month is that they would basically put a cassette in a tape and they would speak to us and they would mail it and it would get received in the house and would sit down and listen to their voices. I love that. That right there tells me what kind of parents you had. Yeah. I mean, that, no, they, yeah. that is that is awesome. They're extraordinary people. Yeah, they are. They are. Uh, I... Please tell them for me that I have the ultimate admiration for them. I mean, I they're, they're just, yeah. they're exactly. my heroes. They're my heroes. And I, you know, that's, as a parent, that's what we always try to do. We, we you know, we wanted the best for our kids. We always wanted the. I think 99% of the parents out there want the same thing. But you were in, in such an incredible situation and you managed to get through it, and it was yeah. thanks thanks to your mom and dad. When did you learn English? I mean, you came over. <laughs> that, when, that is that's a, that's got to be another story. I know that's inter- it's an interesting story. Basically, I started learning English before I came to this country because, like a lot of outside of the U.S., a lot of folks take very seriously the idea that you always have to speak in a second language, and English, in part because of the U.S., is the single most important language. So when I was in school, I took English as a second language, but I really didn't speak it. You can't really learn to speak a language right again in school. So I began to learn to speak English at eight years old when I began to come here for vacation to visit my parents. You know, I would never advise anybody to do it this way, but I swear to you, it was sometimes from watching bad television. <laughs> so, so we were here, we were bored. My parents didn't allow us to simply go out and sort of go to to other places. So we turn on the TV and you would watch the shows. But it wasn't just regular shows, Andy. Uh, I'm almost ashamed to admit it. But at some point, me and my older sister became hooked on daytime soap operas. So, so, so we are these two young Haitian kids. We have no idea what these shows are really about. We have no way to really connect with the culture, but it seems vaguely interesting, and we watch them every day. And (laughs) so, you'll be amazed of how much of the language you pick up just by listening. (laughs) Yeah, I watch, and I will even tell. I don't even know. I don't even know if it's still on. But I will, to this day, I remember which one was our favorite. It was a soap opera called The Guiding Light. Yeah. We love The Guiding Light. Did you, did you ever watch All My Children? Was that on your list? We we saw some of it. We saw. Um, we also sometimes watched a little bit of General Hospital. 
because back then everybody was in love with General Hospital. We could never understand why. But I don't know why. For us, it was the guiding light. The guiding light. Oh. oh Do you, yes. I mean, I don't even know if it's still on. Is it still on? I don't. I don't know, but I, the reason I ask if you ever watched All My Children, I was actually on it on an episode of All My Children. Really? Back, yeah, back when I was an, an actor. <laughs> it's like, I, oh. And I had this, you know, I, somehow, and as you were talking, I had this image of these two kids watching me. Oh, yeah. Maybe that, <laughs> you never know. So it's interesting that Laugh has brought it together because you never know. Maybe one of those days. My sister and I were in front of the uh, in TV, sitting on the carpet, watching you. Yeah, that's it, right. It's like, uh, well, this ep- yeah, that that episode kind of sucks. Let's turn it to the guiding light. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what, we don't know what, what this tall guy is talking about. What What was it like acclimating? I mean, other than you know taking your cues from the guiding light, how was it otherwise? <laughs> it was fascinating. It really was because. I remember to this day, the very first day I set foot in the U.S. As I said, we 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 used to come for vacation, but school in Haiti ends earlier than typically American school. So when we let the first day I landed in the U.S., you in the U.S. somehow for some reason had a late 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 snowstorm. It wasn't a very big snowstorm because my parents lived in New York, but then in Brooklyn, and I remember landing in New York, Kennedy Airport, and seeing snow, feeling snow for the first time. It wasn't on the ground because it was very light, light dusting. And I had grown up reading about snow. I had read about it in books and all of that, but it was the first time I experienced it. It was sort of truly bizarre and sort of seeing the culture and sort of interacting with it and I think I cannot tell you for me when things clicked. I cannot tell you for me when I begin I begin to say, oh, okay, I think I understand. I understand the culture. Maybe I will always be a little bit of an outsider. And I sometimes I still do. The moment I open my mouth anyway, people realize I'm an outsider. <laughs> but um Well, these days, you know, depending on your politics, I <laughs> I, yeah, I get that. I well I let know. me let me ask you something before I want to back up for a second. How did your your dad he came over with nothing and how did he make a living? How did he make do? I know. He basically like a lot of immigrants, he essentially ended up working in the service industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like a lot of these immigrant communities, they develop informal networks. So, for example, yeah. if you're Haitian, one of the first places you'll go to is Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Brooklyn, New York, which is a large community, or you'll go to, to Florida. So, and when you land there, you have friends, you have relatives, and they say, oh, I heard about this job in this place and all of that. And, of course, you start at the bottom. So for most of my father's life, he actually worked in the service industry. In fact, I can tell you exactly where it worked because it's an interesting story. My father ended up joining a union that provided cleaning services for what was then the World Trade Center. Wow. So for years and years until he retired, you know, he was a union member. He and his union went on strike to gain benefits. So he was able to gain Healthcare. He was able to gain dental benefits, and he was able to gain a week off from work, which I will always remember. We could never go on vacation, but I always remember that he was a week away from work. So he worked at the World Trade Center, and strangely enough, he was at the World Trade Center. And folks don't remember this, but the World Trade Center was bombed twice. 
Not yeah, once. in 93. Exactly. The first time there was a, a, a bomb. In the basement. In the garage, exactly. And my father used to work the night shift. And I think the bomb exploded just as he was about to get to work and he came back home. By the time uh, 9-11, he had retired to Florida. But that's basically how he made a living. He, he joined the service industry, and I think he was able to afford to his family because of his union. Mm-hmm. Um, they were able to gain, like, you know, he didn't make a huge amount of money. He was a working class guy, but he was able to raise a family on that salary. Yeah. Know? It's hard enough, <laughs> as, as we... As, as I mentioned before, you know, being a, you know, a pre-med student, it's, it's hard enough to get through school, even when English is your first and only language. But you not only did it, you got through school, but you went to law school. I mean, yeah. so yeah. you switched from like I did, but you managed to pull it off. Yeah. I don't know. It was, it was a complete accident because here's what really happened, Andy, when I decided to drop out of pre-med. I came home and I basically had a very somber and serious conversation with my parents in which I declared to them that my intention was to go get a master's, a fine arts master's, because I was going to be a writer. And my parents nearly fainted uh, because as two immigrants, their first thinking is that, what? And how exactly are you going to pay your bills? Yeah, that was kind of so, like my the, the same kind of conversation I had. I'm going to be an actor. Same deal, but right. keep going. <laughs> exactly. But so for me, it was never an option. So eventually, law school ended up being a sort of default almost because I thought it was almost the path of least resistance. I knew that I liked to read. I knew that I liked to write. And my parents basically made it clear that, um, you know, being a writer wasn't an option. So I basically said, okay, fine, I'll go to law school and maybe between now and then I'll figure what I want to do. But the thing also, I think the reason why I ended up in law school and I sort of worked hard at it is because, yes, my parents made sacrifices for us, but they set very high expectations. My father always told me that I don't care how long it takes you, and I don't care how long it takes me to support you. Just because you graduate from high school or college and you're 18 or 20, I'm never going to put you out of my house. As long as you're in school, as long as you're getting your education towards something that you want, mm-hmm. I will support you and you can live here. So, and that's the message that he sent to all of us. And in fact, I'm a bit of the slacker in the family. My older brother ended up writing, uh, he's a software developer for large companies. My older sister is a nurse. My younger brother right now is the chief medical and executive officer of the entire NYU hospital group. Jeez. He ended up being the physician. And my younger sister has a master's in teaching and heads a private school in the city. Jesus, you are city. a slacker. I'm, I'm in yeah, interview right now. I, I know. <laughs> I am a bit of a slacker, but it was well, because of that. Ex- the, it's the expectations. It's the same thing that we did, and I'm sure with your with your kids too. It's like, look, we're going to support you. We're going to help you. Everything, but we have we have expectations, and, exactly. And and they're not unrealistic expectations. But you have to do the best that you can do, and live up to your ability. And and again, exactly. I keep going so, back to your your folks are 
Exactly. I have so, ultimate, amazing, I just have no, so much admiration for them. They're great people. Like right now, if my kids were to come to me and say to me they want to be a writer and they want to be an artist, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I could say, yes, I will support your dreams, go do it and all of that. But I think the lesson I learned from my parents is that they said to me, as long as you're working toward something meaningful and important and significant, you will never have to worry about having some place to fall back on because we will always be the place that you can fall back on. All we're asking you to do is to work toward your goal. As long as you work toward your goal, you know, we're never going to say it's time for you to leave the house. When I was in law school, right? You know, like most law students, I was flat broke, right? But every, every week, every week, my parents would send me $50. And trust me, it's not a $50 they could have afforded. But they basically would say to me, you know, we know you have, you, you have help with tuition and all of that, but here's this $50 because we don't want you to worry about anything. If you and your friends are growing up, we don't want you to feel as if you cannot go out with them. And I think if it had taken me 30 years to pass the bar, Andy, they would have been basically supporting me. <laughs> Something tells me you passed the bar. I want to mention that you also married very well. (laughs) I didn't. I I didn't marry well, Andy. Come on, I married. I married way above my station. Well, or or a guy told me, and I think I may have told you. He said, "You know, he he really, you know, he really outkicked his coverage to use a a football term." But but your wife. Parisa uh, yeah. Dengali Tofti is yeah. the Commonwealth's attorney for Arlington, Virginia, which yeah. makes the two of you the uh, the consummate power couple in the region. I think I'm not sure it does. It certainly makes us a weird couple because, as you know, Parisa Parisa's journey to be a chief prosecutor is as unlikely as mine from Haiti to this country because she began basically being a public defender. And she used to do innocence protection defense for people who were wrongfully convicted. And at some point, and I'm sure sometimes you probably feel the same way, she basically looked around and she said, why am I constantly fighting these battles to get people who are wrongfully convicted? Maybe I should go to the source. Maybe I should basically try to develop a new model, what it means to be a decent prosecutor. So that's why she... She ended up doing it. And if you had told me five or six years ago, I always knew she was brilliant and she is brilliant, but I never in a million years could have imagined that she would run for office. And the thing about this is that when she went for office, the folks who were looking at her running thought, oh my God, you don't have a chance. But there is one thing that I know about Paris that folks didn't know is that you do not outwork her. When she decided to run for office, she began to plan almost two years out. And every single day, she would go out and meet people in the community at coffee, saying, here's why I'm, here's why I'm doing this. I always knew she could do it. And I'm very, I'm, I'm very proud of her. And I said, but even before the office, she already sort of outclassed me. And I knew that. <laughs> did did you, you know? meet at NYU Law School or did you? We met at NYU Law School. We Love at, at first sight? Did did she look at you and go, oh, I don't know, this 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 guy's for a me, slacker in the family. No, right? no, for me, for me it was. 
<laughs> for me, it was love at first sight, and it still is. She claims that it was for her too, but it's hard for me to imagine that it was for her too because, you know, <laughs> I don't think I had my shit together back then. Excuse my language. <laughs> no, that's okay. But, yeah, but um, we've been together essentially since 1998. We got married. We We have two young kids and whatever else goes on in my life that is not quite working out, I'm fortunate to say that every single day I wake up and I know I am with the right person. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that makes that makes a world of difference. Have, having met her, I, 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 I would concur. Join me next week for the conclusion of the remarkable story of Addison Francois. I'm Andy Parker, and thanks for listening 